We are glad you've chosen to worship with us, and good morning to you. Ushers, come forward if you would. A reminder, each week we take our offering. We take an offering in the service, but many of you give throughout the week and the many ways that Kiera said and mentioned. But I want to remind you, worship, giving is a part of our worship. And so we worship together, and it enables ministry to happen and take place. So thank you for participating. I want to highlight just a couple of things. Uh, Kara mentioned uh, this week we've got a night of worship Wednesday night. I want to remind you about that and hope that you'll be there. If you want a good cure for all the stuff that ails you, come for a night of worship. You want a good cure from a world out there going crazy, come to a night of worship. Spend an hour or so with us in worship together, a prayer time, anointing, um, and just a time that will encourage you in uplift you. That'll happen on Wednesday night. I'd love for you to be a part of that. I also want to highlight something else she mentioned. She mentioned QR codes uh, in the rows in front of you. I want to just mention that real quickly. Um, some time ago, my wife had said, you know what? We have the QR code up on the screen, but we should make those really quick and available and put them different places. And it was like, yes, that made sense. And so you see those QR codes that are in the row right in front of you. And so some of you have wondered about them. They're not a tracking device. They are not meant to inventory the paper products in the row, uh, though some might look at it and think that. It's the same QR code that we have up front on the screen. That would be the QR code that would get you to church center. And the idea for that, of course, is that instead of saying uh, you know, 10 seconds or 30 seconds on the screen, when you come in pre-service, during the service, after, you can scan that with your phone and get to church center. If there's an uh, event you want to be a part of, somewhere you want to volunteer, you want to give online, multiple things that you can do with that. So that that's why they're there. So don't be afraid of them. They're not, like I said, not a tracking device. We're not trying to check them. If you took our pencil last week when you left, um, it is quite literally the same code. And you're going to see them not only in here, you're going to see them throughout the buildings, different buildings. We're getting them at North Avenue as well so that you can quickly and easily access them and, and get access to church center. So I just want to be aware of that. And last thing on this morning, I want to introduce you to one of our newest staff members, uh, Adele Rebior. Adele, stand up if you would. She's right over there. Just stand there long enough for her to be embarrassed. All right, you can sit down. Now, here's the deal. She was in the first service for the whole service. I told her if that she walks out right now, I'm going to call her out for not being willing to stay for the second sermon. I think it was worth staying for. Now we're going to see if you leave or not. Now here's the test. You are completely free. You are completely free. I want you to meet Adele. Adele is on our staff. She's, she's, play, she's serving in the role of two capacities. Number one, she is working alongside of me as my executive assistant. So we're working together. So certainly pray for her for that. Um, uh, she's working with me. But, you know, working as the assistant role, I was going to say, doesn't require a lot of time or energy. It requires, doesn't have a lot of time, but we'll take her energy working with me. So I get that. So keep her in prayer. But we have a second part of the job that uh, she'll be working on. And so I want to explain it to you a little bit because truth of it is, I can only explain it. I can't give you a job description. Uh, I said to her, I think that Adele, you're the first person I've ever hired without a job description. And usually, if I'm counseling my kids through the years, you don't have a job description, just run away. Well, she didn't. She stayed, she stayed in. I sat down and said, you know, here's what I'm thinking. Here's what we would like to see happen, but don't have a set job description. And that is this. We've asking Adele to come in. She's got a great background working in, in different corporate worlds, asking her to come in and asking to look at all the ministries in the church, all the things that we do with a question that says, how do we make it as easy as possible for a person who might be new to the church to take the next step into belonging, into, in, in, into, into community? Here's what we know. 
If you're here and you're coming to church for the first time, you're a non-church person, so you're typically not church, but someone invited you or something kind of stirred in you to say, I'm going to go check out that church. Typically, when a person comes to church for the first time, we want to be anonymous. That's kind of the rule of thumb. We want to be anonymous. Now, I've been in church my whole life. I've been in church ministry my whole life. And when I go visit another church, I still want to be anonymous. I want to come in. I want to come in quiet. I want to sit by a back door so if anyone's coming at me with a holy kiss, I can bail quickly before they can get to me. You know, you can see the holy kiss people. They start with someone else and they're making their way to me. I'm already gone. So if you're new to a church setting, you want to be anonymous. And most of us get that. Many of you who came for the first time, you want to kind of go in and go out. You want to look at the web your website a little bit first, get some understanding, pop in, pop out. But what happens is this, and that's where our welcoming team comes in. We've got a full welcoming team, and they do a great job. Greeters at the door, people saying good morning to you, information center, information booth, a little gift if you come. Welcoming does the part where you walk in, you feel welcome, you can find the restrooms, you can find your way around, those kind of pieces. But then the question we're asking next is, so after that first time, second or third, how do we make it as easy as possible for someone to take the next step into belonging, into community? Now, we all get the fact that if you want to step into community or belonging, you have to take that step. But what we're thinking is this, but we don't want to, we don't want you to have to wonder where to step or how to step. We want, we know you have to take it, but we want to make multiple on-ramps, multiple ways where you go, I think I want to take another step. You're all ready to go. You know how to do that. So I'm I'm telling you this one, she's going to be working in this whole area. She's going to be working with virtually every ministry we have in the church. If you're a part of one of the different ministries, you'll probably have a meeting with Adele in the next couple of months as she's looking at every ministry to ask, well, how do we, a new person comes the first time. How do we know that they're here? How do we follow up with them? How do we make it easy for them to take that next step? That's what she's be doing. We don't have a job description. She's going to help write it. And as we have it, we'll let you know. But you're, we're going to see the impact uh, from her being a part of the church already. She has been a part of the church, virtually grew up here as our parents came many years ago. And Adele, we're very happy to have you on staff. So a welcome to you. This morning, I want to continue in our message from last week. It's not really a series, but I want to continue on that thought process. As we talked about last week, it was our annual meeting Sunday, so we talked about the church in general. But kind of specifically, we talked about the fact that we are living today in an ever-changing culture. Now, I hate making statements, to be honest, that you make them sound so profound, but the, and the truth of it is, the church has always been in an ever-changing culture. So I don't want to make over, overstate things, but it does seem today the culture is changing very rapidly, maybe more rapidly than before. And certainly COVID all by itself has presented the idea that there's a fast-changing culture, as we talked about last week, living in this post-COVID uh, reality. Now, I want to make something really clear that I don't think I I made clear last week. The reality is we are living in a post-COVID culture. The church is different today than it was pre-COVID. I listed a number of those things. But I need you to know the goal is not for us to get everything back to the way it was. That is not the goal. All of the, all of the blogs out there, all the writers, all of the specialists, all the researchers are all saying the same thing. The churches that simply have as their goal to get everything back the way that it used to be will be churches that will fail. Because you can't go back to the way it used to be. It's a changed dynamic. It's a changed world. So please know our goal is not to get it back the way that it was. Our, our goal is to say, hey, we've got a new day. We've got new opportunities. And I would say very clearly, we've got a new future, and it's a good future, and it's hopeful. 
I look at so many of you who have come to church during COVID or shortly after. We got so many people in our, in our culture today who are open to things being different, open to the new day. And I say welcome. So we're not trying to go create something the way that it was. We're trying to say, what's it going to look like today? Let's move forward together. And so that's where we're headed. And culture does change. And we, 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 we talked last week that said, so how does the church, what's the church do in changing culture? And the answer was pretty basic and pretty simple. And it was this, here's what churches are supposed to do. Stay on mission, right? That's it. In every changing culture, stay on mission. And I can use that statement from the beginning of the church 2,000 plus years ago to today. Just stay on mission. Just stay on mission. Because the mission of the church has not changed. A lot of things do change, but the mission does not change. And so, as we, as we talk about that, then what does it mean to stay on mission? And we looked at this text. Well, we only read it, and then we went off it, so I'm going to go back and read it for you now. And then we're going to look at this text this morning. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, and how do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you might have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, well, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. It's all for prayer. Father. We need you to help us this morning as we look at this text. We need you to help us to, to not just us look at the text, but have the text look at us and then reveal to us what it finds in us and what it sees in us. Uh, Lord, we know this morning that we're going to need your help. Now, we acknowledge that in many ways, but quite honestly, when we walk into church on a Sunday morning, it's not as if anything, the only thing on our minds is church or worship. Every one of us walks in here with other things. Other things that concern us, that bother us, that, that weigh on us, that we're processing. And so I'd ask your help this morning that you'd help us set those things aside. Many things that make our minds busy or clouded, just help us to lay them aside and to hear from you this morning. That you in your word might change us. And I ask that for myself as well as anyone else. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we started last week with this question. So what does God require of us? What does God require of you as it regards to our relationship with him? So in our relationship with God, what does God want from us? And we said the easy, simple answer quickly was love God. 
And we said, if you said that, that would be absolutely correct. Deuteronomy said it real clearly. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then we said, there's a second question that follows that. What does God require of us? Well, love him. And the second question we asked was the question, and do you love him? You know, first one, what's required? Well, love God. And then, well, then do you love God? And we said, that gets a little tougher, right? That's a little harder question to answer. And I'd be hard-pressed to, pre, no matter how you answer, I'd be hard-pressed to, to find you to be lying or telling the truth. But it's a little harder question. And so, as we talked last week, even if you just go through the process that says this, well, I don't hate God, so I must love him, chances are you get to the answer, yes. And uh, it's a little tougher question. But then we learned last week that through this woman, this woman called a, a sinful woman, the story we looked at last week, that through this sinful woman at a, dirty par- at a dinner party, she demonstrated what it means to love Jesus. And it's not about what are the things I have to do. It's not about definitions. It's about just pure adoration. She just loves Jesus and it just showed. And that's the lesson we had. And through her, Jesus taught us that those who have been forgiven much, and right there's the key piece. Hear this carefully. The people in this room, the people who are watching and listening, whether it be at North Avenue or watching on your computer screen, the people who recognize that they have been forgiven much, they will love Jesus much. Without definition, you don't got to get the terms correct for them. They're just going to love Jesus. So that was the question. So do you love God? Now, here's this week's question. Now, as it relates to God, the question, what are we supposed to do? Well, love God. So now the question is this, and what does God require of us in relationship to other people, to our neighbor? What does God require us in relationship to our neighbor next door? And the answer there quickly, you probably guessed it is, well, love your neighbor. I mean, that's what the guy said. It says, you know, love God and then love your neighbor. In fact, that would be correct as well. Romans teaches, oh, no, oh, no man, nothing other than the debt of love. 1 Corinthians 13, I like it, it says this way, listen, you can be in the church and you can have all the spiritual gifts that you can imagine and you can preach and you can teach and you can prophesy, man, you can have all the gifts and you can be just one incredible great Christian, but if you don't have love for people, what's it say you are? You're just noise. And I would suggest that there's a lot of churches full of a lot of people who are just noisy because if you don't have love, then you just, you're just taking up space. So here's the next question then is, so do you love your neighbor? What did God require us with our neighbor? Well, love our neighbor and follow-up question, so do you. Now, this one gets to be a hard question as well. So do you love your neighbor? You know, know, the do you love, love God question, well, that was hard, but this one gets even a little more hard, a little more complex, right? I mean, because be honest, you know, God is unseen, so you can kind of go, yes, I love him, but your neighbor is seen, I mean, so do you love your neighbor? Well, you know, my neighbor lives right next door. My neighbor, uh, my neighbor has a dog who does stuff on my lawn. Uh, my, my, neighbor, my neighbor, you know, uh, parks junk in their yard. And so when it talks about your neighbor, all of a sudden, we're not talking about just God out there. We're talking about people where we can put faces with them and things that they've said and things that they do. And so now it gets a little more complex because when Jesus says, you love your neighbor, you go, well, they, they're dog. I love, the, I love the neighbor. I don't love their dog. So what happens is we begin to figure out how we can explain away our feelings or our actions. And it, admittedly, if we were to press in on this and say, you know, stop dancing around. Do you love your neighbor? You would probably say, well, that depends. 
That depends. And that would be fair. That depends. Depends on what? Well, depends. First of all, that, don't, don't forget that word love is in there again. That's a hard one. You know, I mean, I love my family. I'm not sure I love my neighbor. Like my neighbor. Tolerate my neighbor. Can we define the word love? If it means tolerate, absolutely, I'm all in. So, first of all, we got that one. And then, of course, the question that this lawyer asks is this. And, and who exactly is my neighbor? That's important. Now, you're talking about neighbor. You're talking about my next-door neighbor. You're talking about the neighbor down the street. You're talking about the people in town. You're talking about the other people living in Cambridge or Jeffersonville because, you know, we live in a community where my neighbor is 10 miles away. So, you know, is that my neighbor? Uh, Who exactly is my neighbor? And this is the theme of our text this morning. This is a text that I looked at probably about, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight, ten years ago maybe. A text I want to look at again and remind us of things because it fits right now in this moment. It fits for the church today. So one day, Jesus is out and about. He's teaching. He's living with the people. And he gets asked a very pointed question. So here it is in verse 25. So on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. He said, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it says this man was an expert in the law. He'd be a religious man, a religious lawyer. He'd be an expert in all things religious law. Now, in that day, you have to know, that was the only real law there was. You know, the Romans had laws, but this was a big deal. Religious law, all the things you could do or couldn't do, how you had to live your life. This guy would be an expert, probably a Pharisee, maybe a Sadducee, as these were the people that were the renowned experts on holy living. These are the people that could explain exactly how you are to do, uh, live your life, what you're to do, when and how and all those kind of pieces. Now, be sure you know that to be one of these people, to be a Pharisee or Sadducee, to be someone who is an expert in the law, you had to be sharp, you would be well-educated, you would be an aristocrat, they all had money and wealth, but more importantly than being well-to-do, they knew how to handle themselves because what they had to deal with all the time are people. They were always having to make judgments and telling people exactly how to live. And when somebody would push back, you had to be prepared for an argument. These people were great debaters. They knew how to make the law real clear and how you should live your life accordingly. Now, most likely, this lawyer knew Jesus, at least knew who Jesus was, and probably had heard him speak. And chances are very good that this meeting was no accident. Because it says that he was going to test Jesus. He was posing some questions to Jesus as a test. That would tell us that he's got an awareness of who Jesus is. It would tell us that he's got a method to his madness. He's got a plan. And quite honestly, if you are going in to test someone, aren't you usually rehearsed? If you're going to ask them some questions to test them or put them, on, you know, put them on notice, don't you rehearse that ahead of time? You know the questions you're going to ask. You know how you're going to do this. You know what path you're going down. And chances are really good you've rehearsed it. You've had some family members come in and say, hey, I want to bounce a couple ideas off you. Don't, don't push back because I don't want to get caught with some question I don't see coming. So that's the setting that we believe. And we do that all the time. We get ready for a debate. We get ready for an argument. We rehearse it. We get the words right. We get a little script, little cheat sheet with some notes. We get prepared. We think he was prepared. And it says in our text that this was a test, not a trap. You say, what's the difference? Well, the trap would be deliberately set up in such a way as to get Jesus to do something wrong. To get Jesus to say something, do something that would put Jesus in a troubling spot with the people. And we have this example back when we have the story of the woman caught in adultery. You'll recall the story. This woman is caught in adultery. They bring her before Jesus and they want to put the question to Jesus real simple. The law says to stone her. 
She has been caught in the act of adultery. The law says she should be stoned. Jesus, what do you say? That was a trap. And the reason the trap was in place, of course, we've talked about this before, was that the people were listening and following Jesus. They loved what he had to say. They hated the legal lawyers. And so if they get Jesus to say, stone her, they're going to turn on Jesus because they thought he was one of them and that he had compassion. So he says, stone her, man, they're going to turn on him. If he says, no, don't stone her, then their argument's going to be, this guy's supposed to be a holy man? No way. Because this guy is violating the law. So we can't, you can't listen to him. So they say to him, so stone her? What, that's what the law says. Jesus, what do you say? So Jesus surprises everyone when he says, you know what? You're right. Stone her. And you can imagine the people in the crowd picking their heads up going, what? Stone her. And then, of course, you know the story. Masterfully, Jesus says, let's stone her. And you guys with the rocks, uh, whichever one of you has never sinned before in your life, why don't you go ahead and throw the first stone? We'll watch. Go ahead. It's a masterful moment. And you know the story. They start dropping the rocks and they start leaving because everyone realized no one's qualified to be in judgment of someone else. See, that was a trap. That was intended to catch him. But this says test. You say, what's the difference? Well, quite honestly, this would be maybe more in the line of a thought process to say, let's see how quick this guy is at his feet. And even more than that, this would be a moment where a guy like this lawyer would say, let's see what this dumb Nazarene looks like when I, when he starts sparring with me. It's one thing to have this dialogue with the people and they're all, you know, they're all in whatever he says, but let's give him a little, let's give him a little workout and see how he responds. And so the situation's just right. He builds up all the sincerity that he can muster. And then he asks one of the greatest questions of all time. And just so you know, it's still a critical question today. The question that says, so what must I do to inherit eternal life? Friends, I got news for you that that's a question today that people want to know. If there's such a thing as a life after this life, how do I get in on that? How do I get in on that? Now, we don't, want to, we don't want to give a lot to get in, but we'll do something to get in, and we'd like it to be easy. But I want in. And if we could put a price tag on it, guarantee, you live forever, $10,000, people would be paying it up left and right. It's a question that's still very relevant today. So how does that happen? Now, being one that loves a good argument myself, I love a good debate. I love to be in debates with people. I'm a little disappointed in Jesus' response because this, this lawyer set himself up. Right from the very beginning, his opening question opens himself, opens himself right up, wide open for attack. I mean, his question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I could see Jesus saying, if he were me, um, he's not, so it's okay. But he would say this, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, interesting that you're a lawyer and you say, what must you do to inherit something? What do you do to inherit something? Anybody? Nothing. If you inherit it, it's given to you. It's a gift to you. You may not even know that you're getting it. You know, all of a sudden, so-and-so dies, and they call, you get a phone call and say, hey, you're in, the, you're in the will. You get inheritance. What do you do? You don't do anything but receive it. I could see Jesus, if he were me, going, that's a silly question. You know, bring on the next challenger, please. Because uh, that's kind of anemic. But he doesn't. He shows restraint. And he answers and says, well, you're a lawyer, so how do you read it? He actually acknowledges the guy, that the guy is educated in the religious law. So he says to him, well, okay, well, you're a lawyer. Tell me, how do you read it? Immediately. Immediately, the lawyer has an answer. He says, well, it's straightforward. Love the Lord your God, verse 27. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
And immediately Jesus just says, great, that's the right answer. Go and do it and you'll live. Now, it's about this point I'm thinking that the lawyer sends in trouble. He was, he was hoping for something better. He thought he'd be in a much different position. And here he is posing this great question that would really put the, put the pressure on Jesus. And here this attorney is with nothing left to do but to go and live accordingly. And so sensing maybe that loss, um, he's realizing that the very questions he was asking has set himself up to be trapped. I don't remember the grade I was in, but I miss, miss French was the teacher. And she had had it with us, and so she took out, we took out pens and pencils and paper, and she said, so we're going to take a test. And she said, you're going to write your own test. And she let everybody write the test. You had to have like 10 questions, I forget the number, but you had to write your own test. And we thought, this is going to be the greatest thing ever. Write your own test. And she said, you can't be stupid questions, it had to be in the, the material, whatever. Write these things. Then she collected them, and we thought we were going to take this test. And she just put them away and never brought them up again until about three or four weeks later. Then she passed them all out, and we took the test. Most of us failed the test. <laughs> well, how does that work? We just wrote my, own, I wrote my own test. But three weeks later, I couldn't get the right answer. This guy has all the answers, sets everything up correctly. And all of a sudden, he finds himself failing in the test where he even has the right answer. Jesus says, good answer. Go out and live it. So sensing trouble, the lawyer does what we have done many, many times, and he wants a clarification of terms. Sensing from God that God has told us to go do something specific, and we're not liking what exactly God is saying, we want a clarity of terms. And so verse 29, it says, but he wanted to justify himself, because he's feeling a little bit in the spot now. And so he asks you, well, and who is my neighbor? He's feeling trapped, so he's looking for a loophole. Face to face with a clear requirement of God, he wants a clarification of terms, and we have done that. God says, I want you to forgive them. Well, help me understand what you mean by forgiving. Define that for me. I mean, I've already forgiven them. Have you? But do I have to like them? Do I have, you know, what, explain exactly what it means. I want you to give. I want you to give generously. Define generosity. What exactly does that mean? We look for this clarification of terms. I'm sorry, Jesus, but you're going to have to be more specific here so I get it right. And we've done that. If we can clarify or debate it, then maybe we can bend the scripture a little bit. Maybe we can find a way to get Jesus to lean a little different direction for us so that it's a little more acceptable for where we're at. So we just read the story. Now let me walk you through it. So there's a man on his way. So here's Jesus' response. Again, the lawyer says, oh, who exactly is my neighbor? And so Jesus just gives this story. So there's a guy, he's on his way. He'd be a Jewish guy, a Jewish man who's on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho. Uh, it's called the Jericho Road. It's actually just more of a pathway. Um, there is a Jericho Road that's, on the, that's beside the pathway. I've taken people on bus rides many times. They hate looking over the edge of the cliff because there's nothing saving you on that ride. It's been closed now. But we've seen the walkway. In fact, years ago, I actually walked on the Jericho, actual Jericho pathway. It was the only, I mean, there are other ways, but the only realistic way to get from Jerusalem to Jericho. This guy's making this pathway, and it's always in the rocks and caves and all these things, and he gets beaten, which happened quite often in those days. He's robbed, he's stripped naked, and he's left to die. And he tells the story. So a priest comes along, and when the priest comes along, the priest clearly gets out of the, stays on the other side. A Levite comes along, and the Levite is, would be an elder in the church, a leader. And he comes, and we have a little different wording there. It says he stays on your side as well, but we get the feeling that he got a little closer than the priest, but then he stopped, moved out, and he went by. He didn't stop. 
And of course, then in the story, we have the Samaritan. This is a guy who lives in a place called Samaria. And the Samaritan comes by and he stops. He binds his wounds. He gets him help. He takes him to a place for, for some nursing care. He actually pays for the nursing care. And then Jesus gets done with the story, looks at the lawyer who'd be standing in front of a group of people and says, so tell me, who is the neighbor to this man who was beaten? Now, what's interesting is this lawyer won't even say the word Samaritan. See, don't forget, the Jews and Samaritans hated each other. So it's interesting in his answer that Jesus said, you got three people. You got the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan. This guy's answer, well, the one who showed mercy. Won't even say the word Samaritan, just the one who showed mercy. And from the story, we get the answer to the question, who is my neighbor? Which I think is a reasonable question. Because it still stands that what God asks of us is to love him and love our neighbor. So let's talk about who your neighbor is. And actually from our story, we get that answer. And if we are to get the right answer or to fully understand this parable, we need to get the right perspective. We've got to step a little bit outside of it for a moment and, and think about the perspective. Then we've got to step back in, but now we've got to really step in and we've got to put ourselves in different, different people's places in the story. I remember years ago when my children were little, we first had moved here. I remember the first house we were in, and I can remember our kids. And throughout the years, I remember when they first discovered themselves in a mirror. Any of you have had children, young children, there's something amazing about when they figure out the mirror. Now, when they're really, really young and they look at themselves, it's just somebody else. It's just another person. In fact, somebody who won't play with them. You know, they're a little disappointing at that. You know, looking at this other person and what's wrong with this person, they won't play with me. But there's a moment that comes when they're looking in the mirror and they actually figure out that it's them. And if you remember that, I mean, we have, I've got film still. Uh, I've taken pictures of the kids, not on my phone because that, back then we didn't have that. I have this big camera thing that sat on my shoulder, you know, zooming in. But I got video of my kids, each of them looking in the mirror and just sitting there with amazement as they were looking at themselves and they began to recognize, I'm looking at me. Let me just tell you something real quickly. If you are willing to read God's word regularly, it's the same thing happens. God's word, all of a sudden, the words disappear and you're looking at yourself in a mirror. You'll be reading a text or a passage or a story and if you'll stop and think about it, all of a sudden you realize, hey, I'm, I'm seeing myself in this picture. See, perspective is everything. So what are the perspectives that we have here? We have a number of choices that we can make. So the first perspective we'll look at is, how about the perspective of the man who's robbed and beaten? So just put yourself in his place, and you're there, you're beaten the side of the road, you're bloody, you're naked, and we're taking a survey. We come up and say, excuse me, sir, do you have a moment? And we're just taking a survey, and that is, so who, would you, who is your neighbor? And if you're lying there in that place, what's your perspective? Your perspective is you're looking at a guy taking a survey. You're looking at me going, you, you're my neighbor. You can help me, help me. My neighbor is the next person that comes along. My neighbor is anyone who's willing to stop. That's, that's my neighbor. Anybody is my neighbor. Um, put it in modern day vernacular. You're driving along and there's a car broke down the side of the road. They got the flashers on and you're asking yourself the question, so who is, who is the neighbor here? Is it the tow truck driver? That's the neighbor. Is it the policeman that stops? That's the neighbor. Or maybe he had this thought process as I have. Everybody's got a cell phone today. They probably already called somebody. 
They've already probably called somebody or called help or called the police, I'm sure. And maybe the neighbor is someone who's got more time than I have because I'm on my way right now. I'm, I'm going someplace. I'm not out for a leisure ride. So maybe a neighbor in my mind is someone who's got more time, someone who's got more availability. That's who the neighbor is. Or maybe the neighbor is someone who lives closer. I don't even live in this area. You know, I'm out of state. I'm out of country. And maybe a neighbor is someone who actually lives close by. But now reverse it. You're in the car and it's broken down and you're in the middle of nowhere, and your battery's dead. Who's your neighbor? The next car that goes by, you want to be your neighbor, right? So perspective is really, really critical. Who is your neighbor? Whoever, whoever you can see, that's your neighbor. Uh, years ago, again, we had, we had new to town, and Diane and I had, made a, had, had uh, agreed to meet each other at the library. She was going to take the kids and meet me at the Essex Library. I was at the office. Uh, we meet at four o'clock. I got down there at four o'clock. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. This is pre-cell phones. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. She's not there. Um, finally, the librarian is, is, you know, this is unusual for a librarian to be shouting in there. Any, is there Scott Slocum here? Scott Slocum here? So I went to the desk and said, yeah, that's me. She goes, I have a phone call. I pick up the phone. It's someone I don't know. She said, hey, I live in such and such a corner. I just needed you to know that my wife, your wife told me that you're there at the, at the library and she's been in a car accident. Um, they're hurt, but they're, they're alive, but they're not going to make it to the library. All right, hung up the phone, and I'd heard all these sirens while I'm at the library. I jumped in the car, I got up to the corner and, and Countryside Drive where they were still at, and they were, they were putting my daughter in the ambulance. She had to cut down her head, and my wife had a, a broken foot. In that moment, talking to Diane, a guy T-boned her, tried to cut her off. In that moment, my daughter bleeding, her with a broken, broken foot, kind of pinned by the steering wheel, and, and both kids screaming and crying. Ask her the question, who's your neighbor? Anyone. Anyone who would walk up and say, how can I help you? Anyone, like the neighbor who ran back to their house to say, I'll call your husband. You see, perspective is critical here. Perspective is everything. But don't forget, there's a couple other perspectives to make sure you look at. Uh, we have in here the priest and the Levite. Now, what their, might their perspectives be? Now, just so you know, if this lawyer was going to write up a list of who would be, make the best neighbors, the top two would be the priest and the Levite, the pastor and the elder, the pastor and the governing board member. It would be number one and two on the list. But the text says the priest comes and goes with no help. In fact, deliberately stays off to the side. So what might that priest be thinking? Well, if he's like any one of us, we might be thinking, oh, who knows what kind of life they live. You know, if you're going to live that kind of life, things are going to happen. You're in the wrong place in the wrong time. We get a little judgmental like that, don't we, sometimes? Or maybe he's taking a purely religious view. Don't forget the priests were called to be clean and holy, not to be unclean. So maybe his thought process, according to church law at that point, was, well, I'm not allowed to touch blood. I can't be unclean because if I'm unclean, then I can't minister to the people because they got to stay away from me and uh, with blood and bodies. It's just unclean stuff. And it could be dangerous. And so I'm going to stay clear. But what I will do, I'll hurry to get to my destination and I'll send somebody back who can get dirty. I can't, but I'll send someone who can. And we've done that in the church. You know, we have this doctrine in the church called the doctrine of separation which means that, you know, we're not supposed to be dirty in the world, but what that means for a lot of us is we stay away from people that need us. In this idea of holiness, we stay away from the very places where people might hang that desperately need to know that Jesus loves them. 
And now here comes the Levite. So our next guy, perspective. If the, what's his perspective? I'm thinking maybe he's thinking like this. Well, if the priest didn't stop, then I won't. I mean, certainly the priest probably knows better things than I know. If there's a good, if there, he didn't stop. There's got to be a good reason, so maybe I, I won't stop either. And so we're not exactly sure th- what he's thinking, but maybe he's also thinking like this. Well, I could stop and help, but quite honestly, do you know the people that I'd be helping all the time? If I stopped and helped everyone, do you know how many needs there are out there? Do you ever think like that? I mean, I can't help everyone. And so his thought might be, if I just stop here, I mean, how many times do I have to stop? And then he's thinking, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go ahead, and, and uh, if no one sends anybody back, we'll send somebody back. But I'm going to do better than that. We're going to start a new ministry in the church called the Jericho Road Ministry. I'm going to get a whole team together. We're going to have vans that have Jer- Jericho Road Ministry on the side of the van. We'll have T-shirts, you know, like Guardian Angels. We'll send them out, and they'll have, they'll have first aid packs. And we're, we're going to really change this road. Because we're going to put people out there. See, we've done that too. We get so concerned sometimes on the thing that will start, on the mission that will start, on the world that will go to reach, that we forget about right across the fence. There's someone desperately in need while we're amping up to go reach the world. So maybe that was his thought process. Let's get last perspective. So here we got the perspective of the Samaritan. And the people in that day knew, and I'll just remind you, the Samaritans were hated people. Samaritans and Jews absolutely hated one another. They were against, the the Jews viewed the Samaritans as outcasts, as mixed breed people, as ungodly, as blasphemous, as pagans. They would have nothing to do with them. This guy or any Samaritan would be the last guy likely to make the list of who'd make a good neighbor. If you were a Jewish guy in this world, in this time, you would not put him on the list as wanting to be your neighbor. And what does this Samaritan do? Stops, dresses the wounds, carries him, nurses him, and then pays an innkeeper to take care of him and help heal him. And in fact, I'll come back later and pay you more if this wasn't enough. And now from our story, we get the answer for us today, who is your neighbor? Let's make it more personal. Who is my neighbor? Some of you might recall this, but let me restate it for you 10 years later. My neighbor is anyone whose need I see, whose need God has put me in a position to meet. You probably don't like that answer, right? I got to be honest, I'm not crazy about it either. My neighbor is anyone whose need I see, whose need God has put me into a position to meet. It's pretty simple. It's so simple, so make sure you don't complicate it by putting other things on it that Jesus didn't put on it. Like this, for instance, your neighbor might be someone you don't know. We have no evidence at all that they would know each other. This is just a guy from a Jewish guy from, from uh, Jerusalem, and on top of that, a Samaritan guy. They clearly wouldn't know each other. And so your neighbor might be someone you don't know. And in fact, go back in church history, one of the marks of the church One of the marks that made the church so, quote-unquote, successful was the fact that these new followers of Jesus, they loved people no matter if they were part of the group or not. If there was a need, they just loved them and cared for them. So your neighbor might be someone that you don't know. Your neighbor might be someone who's unfriendly. Jesus doesn't give that qualification either. The Jews and Samaritans, I mean, they hated each other. And just short of an all-out war and violence, they were bitter enemies, You see, your neighbor might be someone who's a Republican. 
Your neighbor might be Democrat. Your neighbor might be unvaccinated. Your neighbor might be vaccinated. See, I just named two things that, that is the epitome of our culture today. And we draw lines over it. Man, if, if, you're, if you're not right, you are left and I got no part of you. If you buy into this and you don't buy into that, then we're separate. I mean, that's the culture today. That's where we live. But according to this, your neighbor might be unfriendly. Your neighbor might be in the other party. Your neighbor, neighbor might not agree with you at all. They, in fact, they might hate you. They might very well annoy you, agitate you, perhaps even hurt you or attack you. But Jesus doesn't qualify that. Your neighbor is anyone whose need I see. I would also suggest your neighbor might be unlovely. Unlovely. Side note for you, uh, I used to work on an ambulance. Bloody people beat up and bruised on top of that dirty and naked are not pretty. In fact, I would suggest that if you walked up today and found someone on some walking path somewhere, naked, beat up, and bloody, you'd stand back for a while figuring out what to do because it's not a pretty sight. Your neighbor might be unlovely. I would also suggest your neighbor might be unrewarding. I mean, this guy was beaten up, this, this Jewish guy's beaten up and got no money, so he's not paying you to care for him. He has nothing to say, hey, if you help me out here, I got a couple of bucks. He's got nothing, including clothes. And um, he couldn't pay the Samaritan. And yet the Samaritan steps up and, from what we know, gets nothing back from this investment. Years ago, we were starting MOPS for the first time. Now, if you're not a part of MOPS today, we've got a vibrant MOPS program. We had a pause for about a year because, quite honestly, every ministry goes through a season and you regroup. But today, we've got Melanie and Kylie and their team overseeing MOPS. And if you're a mother of a preschool child, if you're not a part of that, it's a vibrant program. But when we were first starting it years ago, I stood up. I was so excited. I made the pitch that we were going to start this program because mom, mom mothers of preschoolers, there, there's a need there. We want to meet that need. Right after that service, one of our longtime church people came up and said, and I quote, well, where are we going to get the money for that? Who's going to pay for this MOPS, quote-unquote, MOPS program? You know, we can't be spending money on every group that needs something. Well, that's neighborly. <laughs> Guarantee that with no question there who the neighbor is or who isn't. So it might cost you. might be unrewarding. They, don't, they don't, may not pay back. You see, most times the people who need us most can't afford to pay for what they need. Your neighbor is anyone whose need I can see, whose need God has put me in a position to meet it. Now, just as Jesus has showed us the answer to who is our neighbor, he also gave us some insights, and I'll wrap up with these, what it means to be a neighbor. So the neighbor is anyone whose need I see, got that. Whose need God's put me in a position to meet, got it. But what does it mean then to be a neighbor? I'll give you just a couple of statements as we wrap up. First of all, to be a neighbor means you have to get involved. You have to get involved. You see, when you see a need and you go, oh, I feel bad. Like when you're watching TV and you see the abandoned pets thing and you kind of go, oh, that just hurts my heart. Well, good for you. But that's not being a neighbor. You see, neighbor means you got to get involved. Um, any of you couples here ever get into a debate with spouses about how you drive uh-huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
uh, I'm a get there guy. So, you know, if we're going to go someplace, just tell me where you got to get and I'll get you there. Don't question how I get you there. Don't question the route I take to get you there. Don't question the blinkers that I may or may not use to get you there. I'll get you there. So when Diane says to me along the way, she goes, hey, I want to go to Old Navy. Why don't you come along? Old Navy, why don't you take a pencil and stick it in my eye? (laughs) The only thing that can be worse than Old Navy was Christmas tree shops, which is right next door. And so she knows that's not flying. So she goes, seriously, you got to come with me. I, I, I know how this goes. No, no, listen, Old Navy and then Longhorn. Okay, I'm in. <laughs> I can put up with one dose of Old Navy for one dose of beef. All right, I'm in. Let's go. And as we're pulling in, she'll say, ooh, we're right here by Christmas tree shops. Let me run in real quick. Ah. So we go in. Now, admittedly, I got a confession. I kind of like Christmas tree shops. You know, if you don't go every week, you miss out. So I got to go work the aisle, you know. So we get done with that. We go to Old Navy. And it's like, now, don't forget, Longhorn. Yeah, we're going. Let's go. We go. We eat. We're done. And while she's there, she goes, you know, we're right close to Marshall's. And I want to stop at Cole's. And I'm a dead man. And I got nothing to say because my belly is full. And it's like, yeah, it makes sense. Slow goats. Let's go do that. Make sure you catch this piece. This Samaritan was not on a joyride. He was not on a joyride. This Samaritan was not on a nice little shopping trip. Let's stop and have lunch along the way. This Samaritan is on one of the most dangerous roads there were. And when you go on this road, you get from this point to that point. But what does he do? He stops. And he gets involved. He engages. He's on the only road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a treacherous road, dangerous road, but he stops and he gets involved. That's what it means to be a neighbor, is you get involved. Second thing, it means that you have to give your time. The most precious commodity that we own today, the most valuable thing that we own today is our time. And it's going to cost you time. You cannot be a neighbor without it costing you time. It's just that simple. You can't. It's not something you can do because you think it in your head. And the third thing it means is this. It means it's going to cost you money. Being a neighbor is going to cost you money, resources. The story says that this guy, the Samaritan, gives two denarii. One denarii would be one day's wages. So if you want to put it in perspective, go home this afternoon while you're sitting around having a little fun and just figure out how much you make. And divide that into a daily wage, you know, and, and figure it out. And that's what this guy gave. He gave one day's wage. Don't play games with pre-tax or whatever. Just here's the whole lump sum one day. Because that's what we do. Make it as, as palatable as possible. He gave one day's wage and then two days wages. And said on top of that, and I'll give you more when I come back. So being a neighbor means it's going to cost you something. You're going to have to give your resources. So let's wrap up. He got involved. He gave his time. And he gave his money. For who? For someone whom he did not know. For someone who was unfriendly. For someone who was unlovely. And for someone who was unrewarding. Why? Because my neighbor is anyone whose need I see. 
whose need God has put me in a position to meet. Period. Will you do that? Now, you ought to be asking the question, Scott, you know, we were talking about the church, but this sounds kind of personal. Why why are you giving this personal thing in, in light of how the church is going to exist in the future? Because you are the church, right? See, listen, there are some people that would say, listen, you want to have a thriving church in the future? Do concerts. Let's do Christian concerts. Let's do, uh, bring group choirs in. Let's have a lot of Christian speakers in here. Let's do that. And we can do that. And I guarantee you that we'll fill up the place. And eventually they'll come for the concert. Eventually they'll end up coming Sunday morning. But you know who that will be most likely? People who from other churches are saying, ooh, let's go there because that's the best show in town. Now there's nothing wrong with folks from another church that wants to go looking for a change. But you know, friends, the future of the church is not dependent on which concerts, which speakers, which programs we do to get a crowd of Christians in. The future of the church is dependent on you and me living a missional life. The future of the church is based on me loving God first and loving my neighbor as myself second and being a neighbor. And if you'll do that, church will be here well after you and I are here and gone. Church will still be here, still on mission. You see, if we'll do that, live on mission, then if a recession comes, no worries, church will be full. I hate to say this, another pandemic comes, no worries, church will be full because we're on mission. Couple weeks, we're going to give Easter invite cards. So when you invite someone to church, you can say, "Here's a card. I can give you a hundred cards, and you can pass those out to a hundred people. Maybe one or two might come if you catch someone in need. But you know what? If you hand that card to someone who you've been a neighbor to, you've loved them, they're very likely to say, "Sure, I'll give that a go." Why? Well, because you've been my neighbor. So let me in. I was tempted. I didn't say this. But I was tempted as one of my points to say, so to be a neighbor, you got to get off your donkey. But I was going to use a different word. Some of you are just getting that. You're going, oh, but I didn't want you parents calling me. But the truth of it is, folks, you got to get off your donkey. If you're going to be a neighbor, you can't just be sitting on your donkey going by. You got to get in the game. The future of this church in this area is as vibrant and as real and in front of us as as it has ever been. And it's not going to be because of programs that we run. It's going to be because of people who love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, and with all their strength. And they love their neighbor like themselves. Stand, please. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is our mission. That lawyer actually had the right answer. He just didn't have the right lifestyle to go with the answer. May that not be true of us. Raise up in this people, in this church people, not just willing to show up on Sunday, though we'll take them, we'll welcome welcome you, but would you raise up people who are your followers that will live wholeheartedly for you and your kingdom and would just flat out love people as their neighbor. And then the church will have no problem flourishing and growing 
and being here well into the future because the gospel is still changing lives today. Dismiss us in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.